The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got, uh, I guess you could call it a a fresh and not so fresh topic. Fresh being it's based on a PLR, private letter ruling, that was released. Uh, private letter ruling is when you reach out to the IRS with your issue, ask them to forgive you of something or allow you to do something that might be in a gray area or up for interpretation, and they respond. And in this particular case, it uh, is regarding a bit of a debacle with a inherited IRA and they were essentially asking the IRS if they could do something that it wasn't totally clear that they were allowed to do. But it's going to allow us to talk about a lot of the issues related to IRAs when you pass away. They can be a bit troublesome if not handled correctly and cleanly. And you'll get the sense of that when Jim walks us through the situation uh, regarding this uh, recent PLR that was reduced. Actually, I don't know how recent the PLR was. The article about the PLR is fresh, but I suspect the PLR is pretty recent. Correct, Jim? The PLR uh, is from 2023. Yeah, so pretty recent, just this last year. Yep. Okay, so folks, this is going to be a lot of little mini rabbit holes I'm not going to go down deeply, but I intend to take the facts of this case, literally, just so everybody knows. Uh, I I can't stress enough. Chris and I do this podcast for fun. I literally sometimes don't know what I'm going to talk about. Today I woke up. Everybody knows because I say all the time. I do most of my reading in the morning when I wake up and I'm laying in bed. I had no idea what I was going to do the podcast on. I knew I had to do an EDU show today. And I was reading the uh, morning briefing from Steve Leinberg's service, and this came across. I do like the author, Bruce Steiner. Uh, he's an estate planning attorney. Uh, I do. I never met the guy, but I do admire his knowledge. So when I saw it was Bruce's, I thought, oh, I'm going to read this. And it turned out to be on IRAs. I was like, oh, perfect. 
what better than me to geek out on estate planning, which again, we're not estate planning attorneys, but I like geeking out on it. And I also like Bruce Steiner. So I had the best of both worlds this morning, Chris. Nice. And it's a very short summary by Bruce. I did not read the uh, PLR. Uh, Most times I do get the PLRs and then I'll kind of read them myself. But I thought, well, there's really no need to. Bruce provided pretty much everything of importance that I needed. And I literally said today to Chris, when we finished our group meeting about 1230 my time, it's uh, four o'clock now. I said, hey, Chris, I think I'm going to talk about this podcast. Uh, Excuse me. I think I want to talk about this PLR on the podcast. But I'll be able to take a lot of the facts of this and expand upon them and just kind of teach people, teach people a little bit about IRAs and trusts and how they mix like oil and water and some things to avoid and just kind of go from there. So I think everyone will find this interesting. I think you'll learn something. I hope you do. But if you're new, you're definitely going to learn things. If you've been listening to Chris and I for years, it's probably going to be more of a refresh of things that we've covered in the past on the podcast. So again, I got this as the summary from Leanberg. Bruce Steiner is the gentleman who provided the summary. Uh, the PLR, if anybody wants to look it up, I have not looked it up. But if you ever want to figure out and read a PLR, it's 2023, which is the year uh, 48009. And that 48009, that does stand for things. You can get right down to the, the month, the day, the week, or something. I, I forget what it is and how you interpret the last letters. The first four letters is always the year that the PLR was released. I forget what the numbers after it means, but there is a meaning to those numbers. And Ed goes over, Ed Slot uh, goes over this with us every now and then when we do our semi-annual training with him. He gives us what the, all those numbers in the PLR mean, and I forgot what they mean. But anyways, that's the PLR. And for Bruce Steiner, for anybody who wants to know, Uh, If you're in New York, he is an estate planning attorney in New York. He's actually based in New York City. Never met the guy. He seems extremely competent. I I think he only works with higher net worth people, but I'm not 100% sure. I certainly don't want to make assumptions about his business model. But if anybody's in the New York City area and you're looking for an estate planning attorney, uh, Bruce Steiner, and the firm he works for is Kleinberg, Kaplan, Wolf, and Cohen. That's a mouthful right there, I would say. Uh, And Bruce is appointed in New York and Florida. So, which makes sense. I'm sure there's a lot of New Yorkers who went in Florida or moved to Florida. So Bruce is appointed in New York and Florida. So if you live in those states and you're looking for an estate planning attorney, you might want to look the guy up. I don't know anything about him, never spoke to him. I just find him intelligent, or at least he writes intelligent. Hopefully he speaks equally as intelligent. All right. I think I covered everything on the intro. What do you think, Chris? I think so. I pulled up the PLR in case we need to reference anything. Oh, you got it in front of you? Mm -hmm. Excellent. If you could then, if they list the age of the IRA owner when he or she died and the age of the wife, Bruce does not reference either of those two, but that would be Helpful for me to know. The first thing I notice immediately is it states the decedent died before the decedent's required beginning date. 
So See, we, now, Bruce did not mention that, so that's very important. Yeah, we don't have the uh, age, but we have that nugget of information. I'll keep Why don't you expand? Because for... this is the whole point. We want to mm-hmm. teach people on this. We're not just going to talk about this PLR because it's a rather short one. I want to teach people. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you just said in English, what it means, what you just said? <laughs> so your required beginning date is the date when you are required to begin taking your first minimum required distribution from a traditional retirement account, usually an IRA or 401k. The required beginning date is April 1st of the year following the year you reach the age you are required to take minimum required distributions. And I say it like that because depending on your year of birth, the uh, your RMD age is uh, going to vary a little bit. And basically, people born prior to 1960 have now a required uh, minimum distribution age of 73. If you're born in 1960 or after, that's been pushed out to 75 years old. So in the year you turn either 73 or 75, uh, you have until April 1st of the following year to take your first required distribution. Um, they give you a little uh, grace period, we'll call it. Normally, you have to take your required distribution in the year that it's due by December 31st of that year. But in the first year that you're a subject to RMDs, they give you that little bit of grace period uh, till April 1st of the following year, just in case you weren't paying attention and time got away from you. But that's essentially what we're talking about. Perfect. And for those who don't know, PLR stands for Private Letter Ruling. Keep in mind, that's when an individual or a company, a corporation, can apply to the IRS essentially with a question. They can be simple questions or far more complex questions. And you're asking the IRS to give you a ruling that, hey, will you let me do this? Or if we do that, how would you react? What would you think? I mean, literally, this is what some of the PLRs are asking. A private letter ruling does get sent out publicly, but the IRS goes to great lengths to protect the privacy of the people involved. But they also go to very great lengths to warn people. You can use a PLR for the educational purposes only, Kind of come with the the caveat, do not try this at home. You know, those types of uh, warnings you see. Yeah. The IRS is saying you can use this to get an idea of what we're thinking, but you cannot rely on them as rule of law. Unlike a revenue ruling, which applies to everyone and is the IRS explicitly stating This is our opinion on things, and we are ruling this is what we are going to do. So that's a revenue ruling. A PLR, a private letter ruling, as the name implies, applies to a private or just to one individual or company. Companies apply for PLRs all the time to try to gauge what the IRS would allow or not allow. The going rate for PLR is 20 grand. That's just to the IRS. It goes up from there. 
and can go up quite substantially depending on who's asking and what you're asking. So this woman, because it's a wife who filed this PLR, was in the hole for 20 grand plus legal fees. A PLR is not just you saying to the IRS, hey, here's my question. And then you typing out a sentence or two and then saying, give me an answer. In the PLR, you have to lay out your case. You have to lay out your case on what you think the answer will be, why you think the answer will be that. You have to reference prior PLRs. You got to kind of do the IRS's homework for them so they don't have to go figure this all out. So you have to reference any prior PLRs, any revenue rulings, any sections of the IRC, Internal Revenue Code. That takes legal fees. So you need to hire people like Bruce or attorneys or attorneys who are also CPAs and start quantifying your case, getting everything listed, giving it to the IRS in the format they want and on the forms they require. So when you are all wrapped up, it's pretty much double in legal fees almost what you had to pay to the IRS. So maybe 20 grand to the IRS and 10, 20 grand in legal fees just to file the PLR. So one of the things that amazes me the most is this unnecessary and time-consuming endeavor could have been avoided if the decedent just had good advice. Yeah. And if somebody just sat down and said to him, what in the hell is it you're trying to do? And I don't think the attorney who put his trust together ever asked him that. So hopefully you had a chance to peruse at least the peruse. Is it peruse or peruse? Whatever the hell it is. Look, look through mm-hmm. the PLR. Do you have the age of the wife when she inherited it? No. And I think they've done that to try to – they didn't give any either of the ages <clears throat> that I could see so far. No. Uh, I think just in, you know, protecting their privacy. So, And then in Bruce's summary, he doesn't say – the percentage that the wife was entitled to, he just calls it X, percentage X. Does the IRS actually say how much of the IRA she was in, uh, named as primary beneficiary of? No. Okay. It says, and that's it, it, uses, it uses wording like this. Taxpayer is the beneficiary of a percent, like a, like the variable of a specified right. residue of trust. So, and and that's exactly the yeah. verbiage Bruce used, a capital A in quotation mark yeah. percent. We're yeah. going to use X. A threw me for a loop. I'm like, A, A percent or A percentage? Well, they didn't use X because X they, they named the IRAs U, V, W, and X. So, Well, we won't do that. We'll just call <laughs> the IRA the IRA. <laughs> well, there's four of them, remember? <laughs> there are four. We're going to get to that. Yes. Okay. 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 So Chris has the PLR in front of him if we need any more depth. Knowing that the IRA owner died prior to his required beginning date is is important here, for sure. So in a nutshell, folks, here's what happened. You had a decedent, obviously a husband, and the decedent passed away. 
and the decedent had four IRAs. The wife was one, excuse me, the decedent had four IRAs. Before I get deep into the wife, the IRAs named the estate as beneficiary. Who gave him this advice is beyond me. Never, ever name an estate as beneficiary of an IRA. I don't care. If someone ever tells you to do it, I don't want to say run from them or smack them upside the head. Listen to them and see if they can justify why they're telling you that. Oftentimes, attorneys who probably have no business doing estate planning will try to do it. And I have heard this from attorneys before or clients who went to attorneys. Oh, my attorney took care of everything. He said, just leave everything to the estate. It's all going to feed into a trust. I got it all covered. I have literally heard that several times throughout my 25-year career so far in helping people retire. I can only assume that's kind of what this gentleman was told, that the attorney he went to knew just enough about creating trusts and estate planning to get himself in trouble, but not really do a very good job for his client. So a couple of things. He had, the decedent had four IRAs. I don't know why. That's a lot of complexity. Now, granted, he died before his required beginning date, which was age 73 for him. I would assume since, well, it could have been 70, could have been 73. Yeah, it could have been 72 or 73. This He probably died before turning 70 and a half with the pre-secure rules. So somewhere around, yeah. I don't know the exact age. It doesn't give it, but I'm going to say he died either before 72 or 73. Having four IRAs. I don't see the reason for that because all four IRAs were combined after his death into one before the wife tried to do what she wanted to do. So because they were all combined into one, it means they had the same beneficiaries, the same percentage amounts. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be combined if if they had multiple and different beneficiaries. It would get exceedingly difficult to combine them. So I'm just assuming everything was identical, especially the percentage that the wife could inherit. And they combined it into one, and I'll explain later why they probably did that. I don't think anybody should have multiple IRAs unless there is a good reason. Maybe one of the IRAs was named outright to a charity, perhaps, which we sometimes see. Maybe each IRA had its own separate beneficiary Mm -hmm. to make it easier at the person's death to say this one is going to go to my wife or these two will go to my wife. But I want this one to go to this child and this one to go to that child. I'm just giving reasons why you might conceivably want to have multiple IRAs. 
But if everything is going to be identical, I think you should simplify not only for your own situation while you're alive, but for your situation if you become incapacitated and someone's trying to step in and help you under a power of attorney. It's a heck of a lot easier dealing with one IRA custodian than four or even one IRA custodian, but four separate accounts. Or in the event of your passing, such as this, to make it a lot easier if there was one big IRA rather than four smaller IRAs that all had to be combined first into one big IRA before the wife could do what she wanted to do and which we'll get into. Anything you want to add, Chris, on the multiple IRAs? Again, what we're trying to do here is take a rather straightforward case and just point out not only what he did wrong, but other things that people who may not even want to use a trust could benefit from. And multiple IRAs is one thing and simplification is a thing. Do you want to add anything to Yeah, I think in general in retirement, if there's two ways of doing something and one way is simpler than the other, if you're going to choose the less simple path, make sure there's a darn good reason for it. And this is where multiple IRAs come in. There can be reasons that you could justify having multiple IRAs. One I could see with beneficiary planning. You have very unique and distinct beneficiaries named, and you want to separate it and keep them cleanly separated. So you can point to each one and say, this one goes to Susie, and this one goes to Jake, and this one goes to Charity, and that type of thing. And if that's how you want to account for it, I could I could accept that as a reason. Um, and there could be others. But if there's no good reason that you can identify, consolidate, simplify. Why deal with multiple custodians? And I'm assuming if there were multiple IRAs, there were multiple custodians because it'd be even stranger to have multiple IRAs at the same custodian. But now you've got all these different statements and emails and logins and all this stuff to keep track of. You're just asking for mistakes to be made by yourself or leaving a mess behind for others when you could simply simplify and I think this applies even broader, more broadly than multiple IRAs, just anything in retirement. If if there's a simpler way of doing it, do that unless there's a good reason not to. Okay, perfect. All right, so let's kind of lay out some of the situation. The decedent had four IRAs. He named his estate as beneficiary of his four IRAs. He created a trust. The trust was not beneficiary on the IRA beneficiary designation forms. The estate was. The trust was set up and the uh, estate documents were set up to pay all assets of the estate into the trust. The trust then had multiple beneficiaries of which the wife was one does the plr actually list how many other multiple beneficiaries there were uh, bruce doesn't mention in his write up so i'm going to guess no but I'll, if you I'll look saw for that, that I'll, i haven't seen that yet but i'm trying to simultaneously listen and pay attention to you and read so no problem but, it, it, again it, it would most likely yeah. be in the summary and again the irs doesn't release everything in an effort to protect the privacy of the people involved they do take the private in private letter ruling seriously and it really doesn't matter 
What matters is how they structured this estate plan. Four IRAs, which as you already know, to me was asinine, but four IRAs paying to an estate. Then the estate document said everything that is the estates will pay into this trust. The wife is a beneficiary of the trust. Let's just say the wife's entitled to, I'm going to give an actual percentage, even though the PLR doesn't. Let's just assume for the sake of argument, the wife was entitled to half. And let's just say he had two children, each entitled to a 25% stake. I came up with that because I'm actually working with someone who uh, sadly passed away. So I'm working with their family. And that's exactly how they had their beneficiary designation form set up. That uh, spouse gets half, one child gets a quarter, the other child gets a quarter. But my client, who sadly passed away, did it on the beneficiary form, which is the correct way of doing it. This person simply created a trust, and then the trust broke it. And let's just say, again, for the sake of argument, 50% to the wife, 25% to one child, 25% to another. Sometimes estate planning attorneys say, and I'm just trying to figure out why it was ever set up this way, but perhaps, folks, perhaps the estate planning attorney sold it as, hey, I'm going to make this easy. You've got four IRAs. Gosh, if you want to change a beneficiary designation, you got to do that four times. If we leave everything to the trust, you can easily change the beneficiary designations of the trust. Just get back a hold of me and I'll get an addendum to the, the trust created and, and we can get it signed and added and you can easily change the beneficiary once. That might have been why it was done. I don't know. I'm, I'm grasping at straws here on why the attorney would set it up this way. But that could conceivably be a reason to do it. The cynic in me would say, well, that is also the uh, guaranteed employment of the attorney approach because you would need to go to the attorney to create that legal addendum to your trust. If you did everything by the beneficiary designation form, you could do it. Most of them, you can do it right online now. Once you log into your account, you can change it right online and click submit and it's done. You don't need an attorney and it can be done instantly. But if you create a trust under the guise of, hey, it's going to be easy for you to handle it with one trust. No, you got to always reference and use an attorney. Do keep that in mind. Okay, so a couple of key elements here. The wife was the executor of the estate. But that is not in and of itself overly important here. There could have been different executors of the estate to pull everything together. What is extremely important here is that the wife was sole trustee of the trust. There was no third party. There was no additional trustee. There was nobody standing in the way of the wife getting access to the assets in the trust. She was the trustee. The PLR that she applied for has been applied for many times in the past. And one of the deciding factors of the IRS is 
does the spouse who's trying to do what the wife is going to do, we'll get to that in a second, does he or she have unfettered access to the trust assets? If she was not the trustee or if they were co-trustees, this would not have worked. You could still apply for the private letter ruling, but chances are the IRS would have said no. But in every instance that I know of, I have yet to hear of an instance where the IRS didn't allow what this wife is asking to do. But in every um, existence of a PLR that, that had similar facts, if the spouse was sole trustee of the trust with unfettered access to it, they would allow it. Okay, so what was happening here? The guy dies, the estate is beneficiary, everything feeds into the trust, then the trust would distribute the assets out, and in my hypothetical, 50 wife, 25 and 25. Let's back up. What was the decedent trying to do? That's, again, something that Bruce can't provide and the PLR doesn't provide because that's immaterial. But one of the first questions we always ask our clients when we're working with them and they have a trust is what, Chris? Why? Simple question. Why is it that you have this trust? What are you trying to do with it? And we have them describe it in their own words. And oftentimes we find that what they're trying to accomplish could be accomplished much more simply. Remember swinging back to our try to do it the simplest way possible, and this is a good reason to do it otherwise. Or sometimes they'll describe something where clearly a trust is required. And in for you know, in most cases, keep in mind that a trust is most valuable if you're trying to exert uh, power or con- control or protection uh, of your assets or resources. If it's for some other reason, Trusts may or may not be the right fit for that, and you can you can uh, have some of this control and protection uh, also without a trust. But trusts really shine in those two areas in particular. So when someone says, "Oh, we did it to control this, we did it to control these resources or these assets after we're gone," well, good thing you have a trust because a trust is likely the best way to do that. But let's you know let's maybe make sure the trust does what you want it to do. Or we're trying to protect these assets from some threat. Trusts are also good vehicles for doing that. But if they name anything else, um, you know, common one is uh, tax planning or something like that, then we really start to question is, is a trust uh, the right way to go? And we might uh, have them refer back to their estate planning attorney to get clarification on exactly what they're trying to accomplish. Perfect. Okay. I don't know what the gentleman was trying to do, but that would have been my question to him. Mm-hmm. What What are you trying to set up? Especially whenever I see an IRA and a trust being used in conjunction with each other, because IRAs and trusts literally mix like oil and water. They don't. They don't get along at all for a variety of reasons. And I hate when I see that. In this case, I hate when I see IRAs as beneficiaries 
excuse me, trusts as beneficiaries of IRAs. I definitely hate if I would have seen an estate as beneficiary of an IRA. So whenever I see things like that, it just crops into my head, something's going on here. And if this was a client of ours, if we were doing a a plan for him, a retirement plan for him and his wife when he was alive, and we saw this type of setup, this would have raised a huge red flag. I would have been asking, why is your your IRA as beneficiary of the estate? During our data gathering process, that's one of our questions that we require of every retirement account client has. They must tell us who the beneficiaries are of those accounts. We specifically ask, do you have a trust as beneficiary of your IRA or do you have a trust in general? So this would have flagged in our office for for further examination. So I don't know what the decedent was trying to accomplish for setting up his estate that way. But he dies. Now we start to run into even more issues. Post-Secure Act, there are certain, does it give, it doesn't give the year he died if it's pre-secure or post-secure. PLRs usually will take a year or two to work their way through the systems. So did he, does it say if he died prior to January of 2020? I'm guessing it was after, and the reason I say that is the request of the PLR from the from the uh, person's attorney came to the IRS on April 6th of 2023. So I'm guessing they probably it had died to be in after 22 be- or something. Yeah, yeah, because RMDs would have had to have begin by the year following. So okay, so he definitely died after Secure One. And Secure One got rid of what is known as the stretch IRA. But it didn't get rid of it for everyone, did it, Chris? No, there are a particular subgroup that can still technically stretch. And one of that subgroup Mm -hmm. is a surviving spouse. Spouse. Mm -hmm. So a surviving spouse can stretch over their remaining life expectancy, if they want. But a surviving spouse can also do something else. What is that, Chris? They can roll their, the decedents, their spouses, ex, well, de- deceased spouses, IRA into their own, making it their own, and then just playing by the rules of their own IRA. Correct. Stretch IRAs are nice, yeah. but being able to treat it as your own IRA is even better. Why? If the decedent died before his required beginning date, chances are the wife was younger than her required beginning date. And I say this maybe with a degree of of generalization that doesn't apply to everyone, but generally speaking, the wife is younger than the husband, although we certainly do not see that at all times. That's not a a, a blanket statement. But I would say 80% of the time, the Husband is older than the wife. So to me, I'm just thinking, if the husband hadn't yet reached his required beginning date, or put in English, his age where he has to take required minimum distributions, 
Chances are the wife hasn't either. Maybe the wife is still 5, 10, 15, 20 years away from it. We don't know the ages of these people. This could have all happened in their 40s. We don't know. I'm going to suspect that the dollar amounts were quite large to justify what was most likely a $30,000-$40,000 all-in expense to ask for what the private letter ruling allowed the wife to do, which, again, I will get to. But had it just been set up originally with the wife, and again, in my hypothetical example, if even if he wanted four iris, I still would have combined it into one, but even if there were four, and he just named the wife as beneficiary of half primary, a child, in my example, of 25, and another child for 25, this could have all been avoided. But he didn't do that. Everything went to the estate. And under Secure 1 and codified under Secure 2, we have three different types of beneficiaries. One of them is called a non-designated beneficiary. Whenever you see or hear designated beneficiary, Chris, would scratch those two words out and replace them with one word. I say this all the time. What is that one word? Human. 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 Just get the words designated beneficiary out of your head. It's confusing. Just replace those words with human. So there is non-humans in a state... Last time I checked, Chris, does an estate have a life expectancy and a pulse? It does not. It's not a human then. It must be a human. Now, there's no law against naming a non-human as beneficiary of your IRA. But it will be classified as a non-designated beneficiary or a non-human human. And with that designation, Secure Act 1 and 2 state, if the IRA owner dies before their required beginning date, the IRA must be closed within how many years, Chris? Five years. Five years. Back before January 1st of 2020, Chris and I had been saying we felt the stretch IRA was going to go the way of the dinosaur. We had no idea Secure was coming out, but I kept sharing with listeners to this podcast that stretch IRAs are a revenue drain to the IRS. They're going to get all their taxes. They just got to wait for it over 30, 40, 50 years, and they don't want them. They want it now, and they don't feel like waiting. And I always said the five-year rule is going to come back, which was the default rule for how fast IRAs had to be closed. That went away in 2000. Um, I forget what bill or act it was, but that created the stretch IRA. Congress got rid of that 20 years later in 2020 with the passage of Secure One. But surprisingly, they didn't bring back the five-year rule. They brought back the 10-year rule. They gave us five more years, 10 years. And I still say, at some point in time, before I retire, 
that 10-year rule is going to become the five-year rule again. But nonetheless, the five-year rule was not adopted except in one situation. When you have a non-human beneficiary or non-designated beneficiary, but a non-human who inherits an IRA and the decedent died before their required beginning date. The exact scenario in this PLR. Now, if the decedent died after his required beginning date, here's where it gets even more confusing. And I do think the government does this on purpose. There's no reason why they should have kept this one little sliver of five-year rule to apply when everyone else practically has to go by the 10-year rule. And there's no reason to do what they did next except to keep the distribution rule so confusing. And that's what bureaucracies do. They don't want simplification. They don't want this to be easy because they fear if they make it too easy, people are going to realize we don't need this whole bureaucracy. But if you keep it confusing and difficult, you help justify their existence. This is the cynic in me, I, I admit. That's a very cynical approach. <laughs> but you justify the need for government to help you and help clear things up. And I think they purposefully make it confusing. Why else? We we always ask this question rhetorically and no one could give us an answer. Even Ed Slot couldn't. Prior to secure, why the hell did RMDs begin at 70 and a half? Why not 70? Why not 71? Just make it difficult. So they passed another rule. This doesn't apply in the PLR, but I'm trying to teach people here. That's why it's an EDU show. If the guy died after his required beginning date and he had IRAs, in this case four, and the sole primary beneficiary is a non-human or non-designated beneficiary, what's the rule, Chris? And I don't. I, you might not know this one, and don't hold it against Chris. I still have faith he's going to pull this out, but he's Social Security. I'm IRA. Do you know what the distribution rule is? I, I think in that weird case, they use the ghost life expectancy and distribute over the decedent's remaining RMD schedule effectively. Remaining life expectancy, single life yeah. table. Yeah. So Chris is right. A ghost life expectancy. And we've actually explained because everyone else gets the 10-year rule, except in these weird situations with a non-human beneficiary, you either have the five-year rule, which causes your IRA to be closed even quicker, or the ghost life expectancy, which lets the IRA stay open even longer than 10 years. Yeah, I don't weird. know why they do it this way. They're just trying to confuse the hell out of people. Now, there is a certain age that a decedent can be. I can't remember the age. It's 78, maybe 79-ish, somewhere where the single life expectancy is now 10 years or less and dropping. But in this particular case, the guy died before his required beginning date. What if he died right at the start of his required beginning date? I believe if you could look up the new 2022 single life table for a 73-year-old. 
16. When, when Chris gets that, that's how long the IRA could have stayed open if the guy died right after his required beginning date. So right after April 1st of the year, following the year, he turned 73. Yep, 16.4. 16.4. Is a 73-year-old. So 74-year-old, the year later, is 15.6. But if the guy died April 2nd of the year following the year he turned 73, the estate could have debited the IRA over 16.4 years. A lot more than 10, which is what everybody else gets. Does it have the age when the single life expectancy switches to 10 or less? 82. 82. So 82. So he could have died anywhere from April 2nd of the year following the year he turned 73 or 82. And the estate could have kept the IRA open longer than the 10-year rule that everyone else has to go by. Bizarre rule? Only case where you use the ghost life expectancy. No idea why Congress created it this way. So I think my tinfoil hat cynic is correct. <laughs> They're purposely trying to confuse the hell out of you. So you rely on them even more. But in this particular case, he dies before. This IRA or these four IRAs have to be closed in five years. The wife could have. If she was just named on the beneficiary form of the IRA, moved it to her IRA, and I'm already assuming she's not at RMD age, and I'm guessing because she didn't have applied for this PLR, she was significantly younger, she could have kept the IRAs open for a long, long, long time until she turns most likely 75. So I can see why she applied for the PLR. And what she essentially said to the IRS is, hey, is there a way we can take the money out of the IRA? It's got to be payable to the estate. And then the estate is going to funnel it into this trust sitting over there. And I am trustee of that trust, and I have full, unfettered access to that trust. Will you let me complete a 60-day rollover and move those assets into my own IRA? That's what she asked only her. She didn't ask about her kids. I'm just assuming her, the beneficiaries that were not her were her kids. And she didn't ask about the kids because only, Chris mentioned this, only spouses can do a rollover. Non-spouse beneficiaries can't. So the kids are SOL. And the kids are not allowed anyways to move an inherited IRA into their IRA. Only a spouse can do that. But if the kids were named on the beneficiary form, it would have been a little bit easier to, to do. Because if they were a human 
on the beneficiary form, they could have kept the IRA open for how many years, Chris? 10 years. 10 years, not five. Five is for non-designated beneficiaries. If you are a human, you could keep it open for 10 years. And even though it doesn't get into it, if the child was a minor or if the child was disabled, they may have been able to have stretched for a certain period of time. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'll never get out of it. Yeah. Let's go back to what the wife was trying to do. So you might be wondering why the kids were never involved in this. They can't. They're stuck with five years. But if the dead guy would have at least named the wife and the two kids on the IRA forms, the wife could have done this without having to spend $30,000, $40,000 in PLR fees. And the kids would have been able to keep the IRA open for uh, 10 years instead of five years. The IRS came back and said, yes, she can do it. And the main reason is she was the trustee of the trust. If there was someone else besides her as trustee, or if there was a co-trustee who had to make a decision in agreement with the wife, she would no longer have had unfettered access to the trust. That is the key. She had unfettered access to identify the assets that she can distribute to herself. She can distribute it to herself or to the other beneficiaries. There's nobody standing in the way. So at least that was done right. Oftentimes, people will put in a different trustee, or sometimes they'll put in a co-trustee, and that wasn't the case here. Which also makes me wonder, what the hell was the husband trying to do? Mm -hmm. If you are beneficiary of a trust, and you are trustee of that trust, and you have unfettered access to it, Chris, does that trust have creditor protection? No. 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 So it is a it is confusing. I do think it's one of those where this person might have been sold a trust. Oh, you need a trust. They set it up and they're like, oh, see, the trust has all this wording in it. Just send everything through the trust. Name your estate. The estate sends it to the trust. We're all good. I think the guy was on maybe day three of practicing estate planning. Um, and had learned just enough to get into trouble because all indications to me is they caused a big mess and literally caused the people he left behind cost them tens of thousands of dollars and headaches and frustration that could have been avoided without this mess. And when all this was being settled, no money's being distributed. Yeah. You can't settle the estate. It's a nightmare. And it takes a while and costs money. You create a trust for protection and control. I already said there's no control. The wife, not only was she executor, and that was not a mitigating factor in the IRS's decision. What is, is who's trustee of the trust. She was sole trustee with unfettered access to all assets in the trust. And the sole discretion of when to distribute assets. There is no creditor protection in that trust. And there's no control. So what the heck was he doing? He should have just named the spouse right on the beneficiary forms. So I have to agree 
It was an idiot of an estate planning attorney. I don't even think it was an estate planning attorney. I think the most idiotic estate planning attorney would have known this. I think it might have been the dude's friend or an attorney who just needed some extra cash. Or I, I could do estate planning. What do you need? And I do think the attorney thought he was doing it right. There's nothing worse than someone who doesn't know what they don't know. I can't think of any other reason why it was set up this way. But the IRS allowed it. Now, uniquely, one of the things that was done, and Bruce pointed this out and I picked up on it as well, they first combined the four IRAs into one. And again, you can do that if the decedent owned all the IRAs and everything is identical on them, all the beneficiaries are identical, you can consolidate decedents' IRAs. So they consolidated it into one IRA. Then they did the distributions. Now they could do that because the beneficiary was the estate. So they consolidated into one beneficiary IRA to the estate. The wife was also the executive of the estate, so she could easily sign everything, although that, again, isn't a mitigating factor. The executor could have signed everything and created one IRA to the benefit of the estate. And the reason they most likely did this, Bruce picked up on it and so did I, how many times a year can you do a rollover, Chris? A 60-day rollover? Yeah. One time within a year. Right. IRA to IRA rollovers can only be done once. Now, it is possible with four separate IRAs, you could have done it all on one day, but it would have taken, even though you had four separate IRAs, if the money was distributed within 24 hours, it would be considered one rollover, even though there were four decedent IRAs. But I think they combined it into one IRA to avoid something being done in the wrong time in the IRS ruling the rollovers not being allowed. So they combined them into one IRA and then did the distribution out of that one IRA into the trust, into the estate and from the estate into the trust and from the trust the wife could direct the uh, IRA assets, her share of the IRA assets out and into her own inherited IRA. And because she had unfettered access to the trust and the ability to identify the assets to be distributed to her, she could do this. She could take her share of the IRA assets and leave the kids share in there. So they could at least uh, stretch out their payments five years if that was important. Put them into the trust, identify those assets and just pull those IRA assets out and move them right into her IRA all within 60 days. 
And that way, they're now in her IRA, and she can keep them growing until she reaches her required beginning date, hopefully many, many, many years into the future. All that could have been avoided. And that's kind of the summary. I just wanted to kind of go over this case. I found it interesting, but more importantly, to kind of teach you guys a bit about this. And again, I said earlier this year, you guys are my vanguard, not my vanguard, but you guys are the vanguard, not not because you have what I like to jokingly call VGs, vanguard engineers, do-it-yourselfers, manage your own portfolios, take care of your own retirement. I get all that. But you're on the forefront, the vanguard, and your family and friends are going to go to you because they know you geek out on all this stuff. If you ever hear someone tell you they created a trust and they're using their IRA in the same sentence, that's a red flag. Slow them down. Have them walk you through it. And if they're ever naming their estate as beneficiary and then they everything pays into the trust, Tell them about this podcast. (laughs) Or if they ever tell you, yes, I created a trust and I named it as beneficiary of my IRA. Either of those two scenarios, oil and water, huge red flag. And just start asking them, what are you trying to do? And see if there's a way it can be done without mixing an IRA with a trust in any way, shape or form. Okay. And then if you're an estate planning attorney listening to this, if you can come up with a reason why it might have been set up this way, I'd love to hear it. And also to acknowledge estate planners out there, especially very, very good ones. I fully recognize there are legitimate reasons why you would want a trust as beneficiary of an IRA. I'm just not fans of them, except for protection and control. And there are Very, very real reasons why you would want to put control on it. But the taxation, which we didn't even get into today because we don't have time, the taxation issues, the cost of controlling with a trust IRA assets is tremendous tax loss. And we'll cover that in a future show. I can all but guarantee it. Once a year, I definitely get into this. I don't know when I will, but we will definitely get into the tax cost of protecting IRA assets with a trust. It's huge. And in my opinion, probably not worth it. And there might be better ways of getting protection. Okay. That's about it, Chris. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Well, thanks for bringing that to our attention and and uh, walking us through that. We haven't talked about that for a while. We've we kind of go in spurts when we, we discuss naming estates or trusts as beneficiary of IRAs. We've had periods of time where we've talked about them for for a while, sometimes multiple shows, and then we don't talk about it for a while. So it's uh, I think good that we circled back on that, especially if we've got new listeners out there that. Uh, might be contemplating such a thing or have heard of someone contemplating such a thing. So don't just go with it. Make sure there's a good reason and question that if that is the way something is set up. Um, well, thanks a lot, Jim. If you, uh, uh, everyone needs to remember we've got a Q&A show coming up later this week. If you want to send in your questions, uh, Jim's the guy to send them to. Jim at jimhelps.com is his email address. And if you've got a topic suggestion for a future EDU show, we always like those as well. 
So thank you, Jim, for joining and thanks everyone You're for welcome. listening. And we'll be back with everybody next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 